Hi everyone, I'm Josh McCormick, and this is Salute Talks. Most of us know of and have experienced rehabilitation, the process of recovering from a medical malady. While rehabilitation is a critical aspect of one's health journey, it only works retrospectively. On the other hand, prehabilitation aims to preemptively lessen health complications. Today, Loriana Hernandez-Aldama, an Emmy award-winning journalist, a cancer survivor, and author joins us today to discuss her cancer journey and the way prehabilitation can make a difference. Well, uh, Loriana, can we get some background on you? Can you talk a little bit about your past and kind of, you know, catch us up to date on what got you here today? Well, first of all, I'm so honored to be here today, and I think the conference has been phenomenal. And as I was just saying, that it is so important that the time is now to start The time has been a long time ago that we wanted to hear our voice and amplify the patient voice and the Latino voice and voices of color, but this conference has been phenomenal. I never expected in my wildest dreams that this is where I would land. I always was fascinated with healthcare. I was a fitness and medical reporter for all of my career as a news anchor um, in all areas. For more than 25 years, I was an on-air journalist, Emmy award-winning journalist. I covered stories. My beat was always the medical side, investigative medical. I was always fascinated with medical, the latest research coming out. But I never in my wildest dreams thought that I was going to become the story and actually be on the other side of healthcare. So this is so fascinating. For seven years now, I've been getting plugged in at different conferences to speak and share my story and help improve patient outcomes. But I never expected that this is how I would end up here. I've spoken at conferences. I was always a fanatic about fitness, diet and exercise. I was the clean eating, green drinking yoga enthusiast for all my entire career, no matter what city, no matter what network I was working for, no matter what city, I was a brand. And they knew that not only was I a good anchor and a strong female anchor, but I also was very strong with my medical reporting. And it was just something I loved. But I, what was really hard for me to understand was, here I was, the clean eating, green drinking yoga enthusiast. I told people what not to eat to avoid cancer, the very cancer I was about to face. I thought that you could just eat certain things and avoid it, which you can prevent in many ways, but I've learned through being diagnosed with AML leukemia that you can prevent away, but just your genetic markers may still set you up for failure. So I was living the life as a news anchor. I was living across the country from my husband with our then two-year-old son, living out my dream as a high-profile news anchor. He was in another state, and we're like, yeah, we'll just keep making good money, living, you know, just, you know, where we all think that we are, like, nothing can happen to us, that we're invincible. And we were in the midst of a fertility treatment to have a second baby. I was burning the candle at both ends, getting up at 1.45 in the morning to work, going in as a news anchor at 3 o'clock in the morning, getting off work at 12, 1, 2 o'clock, then going to galas and emceeing. I was everywhere, and I never slept. So while I had the diet component down and the exercise component, I didn't realize when, you know, when people say, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead. Well, guess what? That, you could be dead with that kind of attitude. And it, it almost landed me you know, six feet under with that mindset that I had because I was so busy climbing the ladder. And then I started having some bone pain and I thought, oh, I always did fitness stories with what celebrities do to get fit. I worked out with the Olympic athletes and celebrity athletes who would come to town. I was actually in Austin, Texas. My last stop was in in Austin as a news anchor and any celebrity who came to town would work out and show what did they do to get fit. And then suddenly my my fertility doctor, not an oncologist, said, 
he, he did blood work on me and he came to my house and he said, you can't have this baby, you have cancer. And I said, you've got the wrong person. I am, remember the clean eating, green drinking, you remember all that part? I help people get fit, like you've got the wrong person. I ignored all the warning signs. And I always tell people that there are so many warning signs that we ignore because we're just too busy. I was too busy climbing the ladder, didn't have time. And I thought like bone pain that I had, I thought I just worked out too hard. So I ignored them. Um, going through that part of my journey, it was that instant where I had to reach out to social media and use my connections. And I talked about that in my speech, that my connections mattered. It, it made me happy, it got me in faster, but it also broke my heart for the underserved that my connections helped get me into doctors I needed to get in to see, and specialists. And that began, um, I, within 48 hours, I had chemo running through my vein at, veins at Johns Hopkins, and I was there for a year, separated from my son. That was quarantine. So for anyone questioning quarantine, being separated from your child while facing AML leukemia with a 25% chance of survival, that's quarantine. No, that's, that sounds uh, unbelievably tough. Um, could you share a little bit about your cancer journey? Um, what were some of the significant moments along the way? So my cancer journey, it seems that it's, it's never ending. I call it going, li- going through life between fence posts because I found myself in a patient and now caregiver role. I was diagnosed with AML leukemia in 2014. I was in the hospital for an entire year till 2015, had a bone marrow transplant. Five years to the day, we have a party to celebrate that I am cancer-free, which is a huge milestone, and then I got the call that I had breast cancer. Going through breast cancer through a pandemic with an immune compromise and all the comorbidities from leukemia was a challenge. And then two years later, we recently we moved to Atlanta so I could be closer to my family for them to be a great support system. My mom got throat cancer, and now my sister is going through breast cancer. So cancer has touched my life in so many ways as a patient and now a caregiver, and I know that my story is bigger than me. And I, I know that wasn't your question, but when I got into the hospital and I said to my doctor, I said, once I started learning all these stories that I never uncovered in all my years of reporting, I said, this story is bigger than me. Like, this is what I'm going to do with my time. Otherwise, I'm going to die of a broken heart, so I'm going to have to do something. And I started reporting from my bedside because I said, there are so many stories unspoken and inadequately addressed barriers and issues, even at a world-renowned cancer center. Now, the medical team, I want to make it clear, the nurses, the techs, the doctors, the medical team were top-notch. But the support system, the pit crew, was not there, and the barriers. And I said, there, there are so many stories, and I started reporting from my bedside to get through those journeys to educate people about what I found my biggest story of my career. I'm happy to share unless you want to move on. So what I shared in the conference today was the biggest story of my career. I asked my oncologist, what do I tell viewers? They're emailing like, oh, do we just eat burgers now? You know, I mean, they would say it in kindness, but they're like, what in the world? And he said, no, bad things can still happen to people. The genius of what you did is you prehabbed, you prehabilitated. Like if you try to type prehab into Google, it will autocorrect to rehab because people rarely talk about it. Prehab is what we're doing every single day in our lives, how fit we are, how much exercise we get, the stress and toxicity. He said, you showed up fit to this fight. We, remember, your dose is tied directly to how fit you are. We can't kill you trying to save you. If you are, if you have high blood pressure, diabetes, if you're overweight, we're going to have to tiptoe around your illness and water down your dose. So you think you have 25% chance of survival? You may have 10. 
He said, you're going to get, this is what you have going for you. You have the biggest bag of chemo. So you may still only have 25% chance, but you have 25, all 25, because you prepared. He said, right now, with the Latino community, communities of color that show up with many comorbidities, and we know it's happening in our communities, I can't give them what I have. We need new drugs, new innovations. But he said, when they get here, they're not prepared, so they don't present well to their medical team, and they're ultimately not positioned to prevail. So no matter what we come out with, if we can't give them the full dose, it, you know, it's, it's not helping. It's only hurting the numbers and hurting the patient outcome numbers. So that became the biggest story of my career was that prehabilitation mattered. And I started to- doing stories saying to people, instead of sending me stuff, you need to go out and get fit. Because you, my story could be your story. You could be here tomorrow. Could you break down for a lay audience, um, what does prehabilitation look like from maybe a bird's eye view? Can you talk about like the aspects of it? What are the different sure. areas? Yeah. So if you think about it, let's talk about rehab first. Many people who've gone through shoulder surgery, back surgery, different surgeries, and they say when you surgery your surgery, oh, we're going to need you for four weeks of rehab to condition you to recover well. And, you know, the, the more fit or less fit you go into that, your recovery is going to take longer. Prehab is what you do beforehand. And people may say, oh, I'm not going to, I'll prehab later. No, well, you don't have a choice. You're prehabbing with the decisions you're making. So prehabilitation is how you're preparing your body for illness, the steps you're taking, what you're eating, the decisions in the, ex- the amount of exercise you're getting, the, the stress and toxicity. We know stress can cause inflammation, and inflammation is a fertilizer for cancer. So all the, how are you prehabbing, whether are environmental factors that maybe you can or can't control, stressful situations that just cause a lot of you know, more health issues. So prehabbing is preparing your body for illness. And basically it's how we're, what we're doing each day and how we live our lives. Um, with the choices we're making and how fit we are. I mean, you don't have to go look like, I certainly don't look, I'm prehabbed and I prepare my body every single day. I don't look fit anymore, even though I know cardiovascularly and I'm physically fit. I'm just on a lot of medication now after breast cancer and leukemia. But you still have a chance today to radically change your life trajectory as and determine of how big your chemo bag is going to get. And I tell people, you know, we just went through COVID and we, everyone talked about, finally, people were talking about comorbidities. Never heard that before. Like risk factors. What do people have? They have high blood pressure. They have this. Well, we knew that if they had those other factors, it was more difficult to get through because they had more barriers. The same thing goes when you get diagnosed with heart disease, cancer, whatever it is, the more barriers. So prehabilitation is making wise choices each day. Or maybe you're not making wise choices. Whatever you're doing, you're prehabbing. You're doing the part before a medical incident happens and your world is turned upside down. And something's going to happen to all of us. So it's just a matter of, do you want to take an active role and become your own hero now? Or do you want to sit back and say, well, you know, however I show up, I show up. My goal and my mission with, is that prehab becomes just as important as rehab and that we can get out into our Latino communities and communities of color. And when we hear all these companies who are allocating millions of dollars for diversity and clinical trials for them to understand that, yes, we need that money, but it's not just when we become ill and you ask us for a trial, you should put some of the money in our communities and help us show up better and then 
improve our patient experience when we're in there. And people, the lay person might say, well, what's a patient experience if they haven't had any interaction in a hospital? Well, when you go in and you meet with your doctor, do they try to align your, all your appointments at one time because maybe you can't take off work three days in a row? You know, do they coordinate your care? And so maybe you have all those on one day and then you're not wasting gas twice, you're not missing work, and then you're not paying for childcare so many times. Those kind of support systems, like a pit crew, I say that supports a driver, that's your experience. Like, do you have the support you need? Because it's like trying to run a company by yourself. Like a chef doesn't run a restaurant by himself. You need somebody to greet people at the door, somebody at the table. It, so when you go to the hospital, it's not just your doctor. You need the support system. And that determines how well the process is. I mean, a chef can make a great meal, but if you have terrible service, you're not going back. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. You said earlier, um, I, I, you know, one word specifically was, was barriers. And we both know that Latinos face a lot of barriers when it comes to healthcare in, in, in general. Could you discuss um, a little bit about some of those barriers that, in your experience, you've seen the Latino community face specifically? And maybe share some ways that you've seen, you know, the ways that Latinos can, the steps they can take to prehabilitate themselves. Oh, the bar- well, the barriers is, you know, when you have poverty, and I'm not saying that, I mean, there are Latinos of all different socioeconomic status, but we also know that we also have a large portion of our community that is um, living in a poverty level or a lower income level. And so when you have that and you have somebody trying to juggle three jobs, they're not working out, they're eating what is cheaper, they may be having, you know, the flour tortillas, and it's also a cultural thing. There's some cultural barriers that we relate to and that's how we were raised and that's part of who we are but at some point we have to alter some of our diets but if you're trying to hold down a job and just make ends meet the last thing you're thinking of is oh how many carbs did I eat and did I have too much too many tortillas or did I have too much red meat I mean you're just trying to get by so I think first we have to help in our communities with the poverty level and and even again for other socioeconomic statuses i mean my sister's not at the poverty level but she is going through breast cancer treatment and some of the barriers she still goes paycheck to paycheck she's a pre-k teacher she's an hourly worker and you know try, we've had to launch a gofundme because i said i can't we we ran out of money already and she's only on three weeks going every day for different tests and the paying someone for childcare, then giving them money for food for your child and her child and my child. And there's so many barriers and the financial toxicity just starts to pile up, starts to pile up. And long after you finish treatment, you're still dealing with bills and bill collectors. And, and that takes a toll. So you have the financial toxicity, you have the transportation, you have the childcare, you have the health literacy. I, I point that out that going through my cancer journey, there were times I didn't understand what they were trying to ask me to sign up for. And I'm well-educated and a medical reporter. If I don't understand, how is somebody who's not as educated, who may not have a family member as educated to understand? How are they supposed to understand? So we have the health literacy issue. And one of the biggest things I talk about is psycho-oncology, the social-mental side. And if you can't support a patient from a psychological standpoint, they may not want to stay in the game. So you may think some company is like, oh, well, why would we, we just make this new drug or this type of chemo or what, whatever, and you think, why would they want to spend money on mental health? Well, they would because 
if, if they need to worry about the bottom line, it's going to improve their bottom line because if patients want to stay in the game longer, then they can be alive longer to take more of their latest innovation. And that's a win-win for everybody. But if you don't help us mentally, we want to quit. I mean, I, it was like a carrot on the end of a stick for me to want to see my son. I walked every day for him, and I was not going to give up because of him. But there were some days I was so tired. I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. But I didn't quit only because of him. But the psycho-oncology, the mental aspect, is such a huge barrier. And I, for me, went from living the life to fighting for my life to wanting to take my own life. And I look at the barriers, of, and I had a good support system and a, and a husband who could financially still pay for our house. But if I had more financial problems and I had transportation problems and other problems compounded onto the mental, I would check out. So the mental health aspect, the human side of cancer care is so critical, and we have to worry about it. Patients need to worry about it. They need to ask for it. When do you get a therapist? When you get well, you can get one now before you get diagnosed. But somebody you know is probably going through it. When you get diagnosed, you should absolutely have one. And you should have one to help you navigate that. So you want to stay in the game. That makes a lot of sense. Um, how in, in, you know, discussing these kind of barriers, how can advocates, you know, civic leaders, business leaders, those leaders in the medical field, how can they, in, in your work, how can they go to actually address this, this prehabilitation issue? Or what, what kind of steps can they take to better impact individuals? Well, if you're in the healthcare setting and you're a provider or a nurse or a technician, anybody and everybody should be really pushing to get up out of bed and walk and move because movement matters, mobility matters. And that, we know, improves patient outcomes. Now, if long, again, I said prehab should start long before we walk through the doors, but when you do walk through those doors, prehab and you can still keep prehabbing and exercise and movement helps and keeps you out of the bed. You know, they would always tell me when I was there, when I would ask about patients, they said, look, the pneumonia can take them before the cancer does if they're, because they're laying in bed. But if you take pain meds and you don't want to get out of bed, then you don't want to get up and walk and it just becomes this vicious cycle. We have to really, really inspire them and enlighten them about the power of prehab and walking and exercise during treatment. But other civic leaders, community leaders, I think, you know, when we ask for funding, that we need to not, I know that the tend, it's so easy to just say, oh, we want, yeah, we'll take it for clinical trials, diversity in clinical trials, because right now, that is the buzzword. And we, I'm not, I don't want anyone to think I'm saying don't, because we absolutely need diversity in clinical trials. I've been directly impacted in negative ways because of the lack of diversity. However, we need to be asking for that money and saying, hey, you know, this is like, you know, you're thinking it's a 26-mile stretch. Well, you can't greet me at mile 25 and think I'm going to trust you immediately. And, and because, so you're going to put all the money at mile 26. Why don't you sprinkle that money along the way so you can help improve my experience, improve my outcome, improve my mental state, build my trust. So when I get there, I do want to sign up when we have that relationship. So I think it's going to take civic leaders, it's going to take community members to really ask about how we can move funding within our communities and also to help support communities and patients when they go through. And we need grants. I, I myself, for Armor for Life, we're looking for grants. If anyone wants to partner, we, I mean, we have programs we want to offer to patients. We need funding. 
and we're available, we can implement them, but, and, and so we're hoping that people who are decision makers are listening and say, hey, mm-hmm. what, how do you want to impact the community? We, will, we have funding for you. Yeah, for sure. Um, got one last question for you. Oh. Um, and so if, uh, for, for those listening um, who have, have heard this and um, are, are thinking about starting uh, almost a prehabilitation regimen, what, what words of encouragement would you give to those folks um, to start that plan, even though it might be hard? Well, I, there's a couple things. I say first you have to be proactive, and if, if you have insurance and you can, get a CBC count. And I say that, you know, do, get, get your health checked twice a year. When, when we change the clocks and you change the batteries in your smoke detector, check and do like a check on how your body's doing. That's prehab, just preparing and doing these screenings for yourself. Is it time for a screening? From a physical standpoint, some basic things that, you know, we hear it all the time, park further away, walk further in when you go into the grocery store, take the steps instead of taking the elevator. Always try to think of where you can move. If you work at a, in a desk in an office setting, stand up. You burn more calories when you're standing. It's better for your circulation. There's different steps. If you can meal prep and make better choices that way, um, that helps with prehabilitation of, you know, making a conscious effort to make better decisions about your food. Um, Cutting some of your portions in half, reducing some of your carbohydrate intake. So maybe for me, I'm always thinking about the protein. So maybe eat the beans, which have protein, and the chicken, but maybe for me as a kuana, I can't have the arroz con frijoles, I can't have the black beans and the rice, I have to just have the beans. So I'm like, oh, I'll just have a little sprinkle of the rice. <laughs> but start making those modifications. And one thing I tell to people is, if you have a phone, and if you can put it on your phone, on your calendar, make an appointment with yourself. So, and I know it's hard, especially if someone's trying to hold down two and three jobs, I put it on my phone to work out and I put prehab and I put it on repeat. Now I know that the reality is every day I'm not gonna go, I can't go work out at that time because life's going to get in the way. But every time I have to delete it from my calendar, it's like a conscious effort saying you just dismissed your prehab. So I encourage people to to just put that in their phone, put it on their calendar so they know you decided today that you weren't gonna prioritize your own well-being, and you know, make that that was your conscious decision for whatever reason life got in the way. Maybe you're juggling kids, maybe you're a single parent, maybe it's you're juggling a lot of jobs, but just to put it there to make it a conscious effort to think about it. And it, it could be just walking around the block. Um, if you have access to a gym, I'm hoping that more healthcare providers can offer more gym equipment, something we want to start providing through my nonprofit. But I think con- making conscious decisions to be mobile find an activity. I push my son through all this all the time and tell him about prehab because he doesn't like a lot of sports. He likes basketball, but he doesn't like this. And I said, listen, you just, I just want you to move. Like whatever it is, you like to dance, turn on the music, dance for an hour, put on some music. Latinos, we love to dance, put on the music and start doing some salsa, merengue, whatever you like to do, but get the blood flowing, the movement, get some sweat, going. Yoga is very helpful for the mind, for the body, for the soul. There's a lot of ways and a lot of outlets you can do it. And now, if you have access to Wi-Fi, and I know for some people that's a challenge, but if you have access to a computer and Wi-Fi, you can Google yoga classes and do a yoga class at home, right on your front porch. 
So there's a lot of ways to start making those decisions of prehabbing. And I also say reducing the stress in your life. If, if you can find ways to cut back, if there's toxic relationships that are eating up all your energy, you might need to make a conscious decision that they're just not healthy for you. Because I, I say it all the time. I love my mom. She's very high strung. And I tell her, listen, I'm not going to get upset over this because guess what? I tell my mom all the time, I'm not going to get stressed because this, I'm not going to get another cancer from stress. If something's stressful, well, it's just, you know, maybe it's not worth it. It's just, is the cup half full or half empty? And I'm not going to try to put a gallon into a quart that doesn't fit and overstress myself. Now my life post-cancer is not rush, 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 like a news anchor and reporter. I get to places early. I don't like stress. So if you can find ways to minimize the stress in your life, the toxicity in your life, whether it's relationships, walk more, be more mobile, and find some peace of mind, that in itself is great prehabbing. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Salute Talks is produced by Josh McCormick and the media team at Salute America. It is executive produced by Dr. Amelie Ramirez. The music heard on this podcast is produced by Bonus Points. Find Salute America online at salute-america.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and other social platforms at Salute America. Watch our award-winning videos on YouTube by visiting salute.to slash video. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. Thanks for joining us, and as always, we hope you enjoyed.